0: Hi, Sue. Hello. Now, we're gonna, the video looks all right at the moment, actually, so we're going to um, go with that. And probably not, you know, it would be a long time for you to be staring at your computer for a whole 45 minutes. So if, if it does start to get um, broken, then I'll turn the video off and we'll just go with the sound. Is that all right? Perfectly fine. OK, over to you. The audience is... Sorry, you've got to look at me, but I'm looking at them. Oh, but I have the best view in the room. (laughs) Right. Have I just set the tone for the evening? (laughs) Onwards. Onwards and upwards. You're, You're very kind. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so sorry. I had very, very definitely determined that I would be present in Cheltenham, but my my job requires that often I have to go places at fairly short notice. And this week unfortunately saw me in one of those situations where I had to be somewhere else uh, doing an interesting job that I can't talk about at the moment. Um, But I have to say arriving in Dundee as I did later this afternoon, I was quite glad not to travel to Cheltenham as the snow started to fall just outside. So Winter has come to Scotland. The topic that Sam gave to me was to talk about the human body. And I've really spent my entire life with the dead. My first job was in a butcher shop and at the age of 13. I didn't think there was anything unusual about cutting up the carcasses of animals to sell to the public for, for their consumption. And I suppose I, I never at that age questioned the connection between life, dying, death, and the body. And I think that comes more into focus when you realize you start to take those steps that are a little bit closer to the edge of your own hole in the ground. And at 17, when I entered university, And at 19, when I dissected my first dead body, I believed, like every teenager, that I was invincible and that the world of cadavers and death were otherworldly and not directly linked to me at all. There was a detachment and a matter-of-factness about the job that needed to be done. And, you know, that cavalier attitude that you can afford to have as a young person really flies out the window with your youth. And and it often takes a a death closer to home to make you start to think about the entire life cycle of the human. And and sometimes it takes several of those deaths in the normal course of a family life for those hard questions to come to the surface. If I can give you an example, my great-uncle died when I was 19. And my father sent me into the funeral director's parlour to make sure that Uncle Willie was all right. I didn't understand what my father meant by this, of course, but I pretended to because my father was treating me as an adult and I wasn't going to let him down. As far as my father was concerned, I'd chosen a life with the dead. And so I'd be fine with it. And he could dispatch me to take care of those matters. He was a very pragmatic and very unsentimental man. What I suspect my father meant was that I should really go and check that it was Uncle Willie's body that was in the coffin, just in case there had been a mistake. But I didn't know that, and so I took a deep breath and did what I thought I should do, which was indeed to check over Uncle Willie. And I started to look at making sure that decomposition had not set in. I made sure that his body wasn't bloated. I made sure that his skin wasn't discoloring. I made sure that his fingers and toes, the embalming fluid had reached all the way to the ends. I checked underneath his shirt to make sure that nobody had done a post-mortem they shouldn't have done. And I even made sure that no one had illegally removed his eyes. These are not the actions of a normal teenager. But but at the end of the day, this is what I thought my father expected of me. And I was never afraid of Uncle Willie when he was alive. Why on earth would I be afraid of Uncle Willie now when he was dead? Because he he really wasn't there. But the questions, you know, start to surface when you find yourself in those sort of circumstances. And in life, we become so extricably linked between what is the body spiritual and the body corporeal and in the process of dying because it is a process they can both change so very much until they're finally separated by that thing that's called death those mortal pair of scissors that cut the bonds between what is physical and what is spiritual for them never ever to reassociate if they're never going to reassociate, then what's the core of that fear we have about death, about the severance of those two parts? And I suspect largely it's about fear of the unknown. And because we don't know what happens, we construct myths. And so the body, body spiritual is that thing that goes on to scare us as the ethereal ghosts that haunt, whereas the body corporeal becomes the legend of crypts and graveyards and mummies and zombies, so completely far removed from the truth. I have never in my life been scared by a dead body, the living, terrify the living daylights out of me. And I was very privileged, and I do consider it to be a real privilege to be both with my mother-in-law, who I, who I adored, and my father, who I adored even more, at that final moment when they took their last breath on this earth, when those scissors cut the bonds that sustained their immortal lives. And I can only liken it to a switch being turned off. It isn't pretty, it isn't like the movies. But when the essence of the person has gone, then it's a shell that's left behind. It's just something that's like a husk of wheat. Somehow the person is smaller. There's a a curious emptiness. The person's just no longer there. It isn't sleep. And we, we use these terms about passing away and sleep. It is death. And we need to call it by what it is and not be afraid of it because it's as much a part of our everyday lives as birth. And when we celebrate a birth... I strongly believe we should also celebrate death, the part of the two parts of what we've been. That body never scares me, and it's confirmation for me that I need to know that a death that is this irrefutable and irreversible change, you know, no matter how much we would want it and wish it and will it to be different, it's not going to be so. And maybe that's what allows me to view the dead body, and this may sound slightly cold, but it's not intended to be, as an item and not as a person. That doesn't mean that we don't respect the person who inhabited it. We do that very much. But the detachment is easier because the personality, the connection of humanity is diminished with death. For most, it's perhaps because we don't know the person that we're about to dissect and will still fully recognize the fact that they once lived and that the families hold their memories dear of the man or the woman who was. But often, under those circumstances, for us, there is no personal connection. And that makes the dissection of the body as an item very much easier because you don't make that personal commitment to it. But that's not always true for us. We are, um, at the University of Dundee, the anatomy department is labelled as being one of the most green departments in the university because we recycle our staff. And the family and the friends of staff also pass through my anatomy department when they bequeath their remains for dissection. So I will make a member of staff work until they retire. They'll go and have a few years off. And then they'll come back and work for us again when they die at no cost whatsoever which is a marvellous thing for them to do and a true commitment to their their teaching spirit. But it does mean that on occasion, the people that we dissect, we do still have that connection with. We do still have the connection between the person we knew and the spirit we knew and the body that's in front of us. For those individuals, there, there is a difference. There is a sadness that creeps into us, but there's still a detachment because for us, this is still our job, and we know that when those scissors cut, that bond doesn't return. Let, let me tell you about Geoffrey. I love Geoffrey. Geoffrey is very much still alive, uh, but one day he will be in my deceptive. He is 92. He has a mind as sharp as a tack, and I first met him about 10 years ago when he was just a boy in his early 80s. And he wanted to talk about death and dying. And he comes to every single public event that our university runs. We know Jeffrey terribly well. He lives alone. And he has no desire to become a burden to anybody. He's decided that when he's no longer able to look after himself, or when he thinks that his body or his mind are starting to let him down, then he wants to be in control of his own exit. He's researched and he's bought the necessary components to construct his own exit strategy kit. He doesn't want his neighbours or his friends to find him and Geoffrey and I have an arrangement. When Jeffrey's decided the time is right and only he can decide that, he will do the deed over a weekend. And before he does it, he will call my work phone and he will leave a code word that only Jeffrey and I know. And that code word will tell me that Jeffrey has taken a life. He doesn't want his neighbours to find him. He doesn't want his friends to find him. He wants it to be clinical. He wants me to contact the police. He wants me to contact the funeral directors so that I can take charge of Jeffrey's body. I can't stop him. I don't know when he's going to do it or if indeed he will do it, Geoffrey is in control. But what I can tell you is when I come into work every morning, Monday morning and that blooming red light is flashing on my telephone, I think this is the weekend that Geoffrey's done it. Well, he hasn't yet, but I suspect that he will one day. But Geoffrey goes on. He's just such an amazing man to, to just surprise us at every turn. Because he phoned me up one day to tell me that he'd like to come into our dissecting room. He'd like to see where he's going to finally come. And as he said, not to live, but to die. And I don't think he actually meant the process, but he meant that when he's dead, he wants to see where he's going to reside. That made me nervous and that made me feel very, very anxious about doing that because I've never addressed the barrier between somebody who wishes to bequeath their remains in the same vicinity as people who have already done so. So I thought I would do it by stages, and I took Geoffrey into our, our museum, where we have lots of pots of body parts in for them, and they don't really look like people. They're very much anatomical specimens. And I thought, well, if Jeffrey's going to freak out, He's going to do it there, and we won't need to go any further. Well, Geoffrey loved the museum, absolutely loved the museum. He was totally engrossed by everything that he saw. And when he'd gone through every pot and asked every question, he said, now I'm ready to go into the septum room. So I went into the septum room, and I found a, a table of our more mature students, and I said to them, explain to them what I was going to do, that I was going to take Geoffrey into the room, and he wanted to talk to them about bequeathal and why he wants to bequeath his body and that one day he will be on one of these tables. And they were just about as nervous about the whole process as I was. In fact, they were quite terrified. They, they drained. They were about the same colour as the cadaver by the time they thought about it. And so they agreed that they were. they were... Nervous about it, they were edgy about it, because they didn't want to offend Jeffrey, but they also wanted to convey to him how much they appreciate the fact that people bequeath these mortal remains to them so that they can learn. So they took a great big deep breath, you know, pulled up what we call the big girl pants and said, right, you know, I'm going to deal with this. And so I took Jeffrey into the dissecting Room. Now, he's, he's very bent over. He has a lot of arthritic problems. So he walks very slowly and he had his two sticks. And as he walked into the room, you could have heard a pin drop because everybody, you could just feel the tension. There was no movement. Everybody was waiting for something to go desperately wrong. And Geoffrey walked up to the table and he introduced himself and the students introduced himself. And the atmosphere had a tension you could have cut with one of our scum until Jeffrey said, what's that? And in saying, what's that? And looking to the students to explain, all of the tension disappeared in the room. And that dead body in front of both sets of people became not a barrier, but became a common ground of communication and learning yeah. between students who were learning and the person who would become their future teacher. I have to say, I wiped the sweat from my brow thinking I got away with that one. And the students came out of the room saying that they they were changed because of the experience. And Jeffrey, if he could have had a skip in a step, would have had it. And every time we still meet with Jeffrey, he talks about it. And he's gone away and he's got his own copy of Grey's Anatomy. And he is now learning about anatomy at the age of ninety two. Because he says that when he gets into the dissecting room, he would like to know more than our students do, and he is a walking body. Isn't that just truly amazing? So you know, in the other part of my day job, I don't have the luxury of that kind of interaction with people. And people are the most fascinating things on the planet. Because for us, in in part of my day job, I tend to working with people who've lost their life through circumstances that might be violent, whether it's as a result of homicide, a mass fatality event, or where death has separated them from their identity. Normally when people die, they're found in their car or they're found in their house, or there's some form of an identification that says who they were in life. One of the most difficult things for a police force is to have a body where we don't know their identity, we can't assign a name to them. Because until we know who they were, then we can't go and speak to their family, we can't speak to their friends, we can't speak to their work colleagues. We don't know who they were, so we can't piece together what might have happened to them. Sometimes the bodies may be intact, we might be dealing with a mass fatality event, like a a plane crash or a train crash. Sometimes the bodies are badly decomposed, They're fragmented, they might be skeletonized, or they might just be parts of a skeleton. But our job then is to interrogate that body, to interrogate what remains of that body, and to try to extract information about who the person might have been when they were alive, how their death came about, what is the manner of their death and to assist the pathologists in determining what was the cause of death, because our judicial system requires there to be, where possible, a known cause of death. Under those circumstances, the body for us is a repository of information, and our job is to try to understand the information, to translate the information, and to establish the clues that might lead us to that final thing, which is hopefully a name for the deceased person. There's nothing worse when you speak to a family who have a missing person. And they talk about their body going their their, their family going into a state of 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 suspension almost where they're in a stutter. They can't get beyond knowing what happened to their sister, their son, and their life goes on hold. So that when we can come back to them and we can say, we believe this is your son. It's an incredibly powerful piece of information. It almost feels like a cruel piece of information because it takes away hope. But when hope is unfounded, because we know this is the dead body of the son, then hope under those circumstances is very cruel. And our job is to take the realization and the truth, hope to these families so that they can come to terms with the grief and the loss. And hopefully that stutter. Stops and their life can move on. So we're very conscious that the human body then becomes a link between the identity of the person who's gone and the comfort and the closure that's required for those individuals who are still living. I remember very well um, a case we had in Kosovo when we were looking at the war crimes investigations when we had to exude a mass grave. And the mass grave contained the bodies of women, of old men, and children who had been separated from men who were of a fighting age. And you were considered to be a fighting age if you were between the ages of about 14 and 70. So the gentlemen in this grave were either going to be over 70, and any boys in this grave were going to be younger than 14 children in that group were forced to run across the wheat fields and they were used as target practice by the men with guns. The gunmen then, when they'd finished killing the children, and they used their heads as the target practice, turned their guns on the adults and killed them too. The bodies were, were buried in a mass grave and they were miles and miles from the nearest road, so we had to trek through fields ...to get to this indictment site against Milosevic. It meant that we had to undertake the post-mortem investigations... ...literally in the field... ...because we couldn't transport the bodies back... There were too many of them to transport over land. And it meant that we laid out sheets of white plastic on the ground... ...and the post-mortem investigations that were there... ...to retrieve the evidence of these mass fatality events was done in the open air. If you have any illusions that CSI and such television programs have given you, that mortuaries are always sparkling clean, stainless steel with running water and electricity, our mortuary was a plastic sheet in a field in 38 degrees. One of the bodies that I was working on was the body of a three-year-old girl. And her body was laid on the plastic in front of me. And our job was to determine could we establish her identity, which meant I had to determine was she male or female, what age was she, to look at her manner of death, which the eyewitness had said the children had been shot in the head. Could I retrieve evidence of gunshot injury, and would that have been consistent with being a cause of death? Under those circumstances, as a war crime, a child of three is not a threat to any force. And so, therefore, it, it shows the strength of the evidence that we have to recover against these individuals committing these atrocities and these war crimes. So we laid her body out on the plastic sheet, and she was wearing her little sleep suit still. She still had on her nappy, and she still had her, her bright red plastic welly boots and whilst I was going through the post-mortem, I became very aware on, on my peripheral vision that, that something wasn't right. And I looked up and what I was confronted with was a barricade of policemen in white cena crime suits and black plastic bullets. And in your mind, something says, does not compute. I, I don't understand what's going on. Why are all of these police officers lined up in front of me and I realized that what they were doing was acting as a barrier. They were acting as a barrier between me and what I was doing in relation to the body of that child and the officer who was on the other side of the barrier. What the officer had done was he'd committed one of our cardinal sins and he'd let his personal life intrude into that situation. He had a daughter that was roughly the same age as the child. That I was doing the post mortem, and he had transposed her face onto the body of the child. And what the police officers were doing was that they were forming a front, a shield that allowed him on the other side of that to break down. And he was inconsolable in terms of his grief. Sometimes that's a coping mechanism, but very, very rarely. And in the kind of environment where you're dealing with those mass fatality events, you assume a role within the team. And the role that I've always adopted with the team is as the mother figure. I'm the one who says, you've had enough to drink, go to bed. I'm the one who says, no supper for you, you've been naughty. And if you don't behave, I'll tell your wife. So that as a mother figure in that sort of situation, I couldn't allow one of my team to break down and to have that level of an interaction, psychological interaction with the body in front of me without me as a mother figure dealing with When I realized what was happening, I took off my gloves, I rolled down my suit, tied it around my waist, I went around the back of the barricade, I threw my arms around his neck and I let him cry and I let him sob, And then we sat down and we talked about life, we talked about death, we talked about children, we talked about body spirit, and we talked about body corporeal. He's still a very good friend of mine, and as yet, he's not suffered that I'm aware any form of PTSD. My fear was that every time he went home, whilst he took his child into our clinical field, my fear was that he would take that dead child home every time he looked at his child. And I had to break that bond between those two things if he was going to continue to have a normal relationship with his child. Grief is, comes, you know, when, when we link things inextricably. don't need to link them. We don't know what's going to cause that bond. But when it happens, sometimes it's a good thing but sometimes it's something that we have to bring. And, and in our Western world, we, we generally experience very little in the way of personal bereavement because we all live so long. And for most of us, it's, it's the death of a grandparent or a parent that comes first. And we rarely go and view the dead like I did with, with Uncle Willie. Because what we do is we, we sanitize death. And we discourage interaction with that shell that's left behind. We think if we can just sweep it, and by that point we're often talking about the body as an it, away into the funeral director's room, and we nail down that coffin, then we've sealed an element of our and when my mother died, my mother died very quickly of a terminal illness, and my children were quite young. They were eight, ten, and I have a daughter who is much older. She was in her 18s. And when their grandmother died, I asked them if they wanted to see their grandmother. And, of course, they were a little bit nervous, but they decided that they wanted to. By going in and by talking to their grandmother and by holding her hand, my children now have no fear of death. And my oldest daughter works in the nursing profession, My youngest daughter works in the nursing profession and my middle daughter, heaven help me, has just started training to be a blood-sucking lawyer so that at the end of the day, all of my children now have no fear of the dark side of life, whether that's death or the law, which is unfortunately where I could lawyers. But we we try to, in some ways, deny death and we try to put it into a compartment And we don't deal with it. And the counseling we have for death is often about the loss of the spiritual person. And there is no doubt that there is a, a healing element to that bond of being able to see the dead body, the confirmation that that person has gone, that self witnessing, that scissors have cut the bond, death has occurred, and that body is left behind. In our mass fatality events in the past, when families have wanted to view their deceased family members, thinking about disasters like the Marchioness, for example, in London, the policy was that police denied access to families to allow them to, to see their deceased members. We don't do that anymore. Now the responsibility is on families. So even after the London bombings, when bodies may be fragmented and they may be badly burnt, then if families still wish to see the remains, we will counsel them and counselling will be there for them afterwards. But we've realised that there is an importance for those who want to connect with the body and what is left, that we allow them to do that. We don't have the right to deny them that. So for me, the human body holds no fear, it is, in some ways, one of the most wonderful constructions, and that's the anatomist of me. so that being able to look at that body when it's dead is a natural extension, if you want of that wonder, in a strange way. And maybe I was that strange teaching teenager, but I, I kind of look forward to the day when I finally get to experience what those scissors feel like, when I get to experience that separation, what is my body spiritually, and my body corporeal. For me, that's the great adventure. It's the great unknown. I'm not afraid of it at all. I can't wait to see. In some ways, what will happen? I'm not in a great hurry to get there. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not planning it in the next couple of minutes. But what I mean is, I, I, when I get, I want to know what happens because it is an adventure. And yes, of course, I've donated my organs. It's what you expect. I know that I don't need this body. Whatever happens in that separation, if somebody can use what's left behind, then I will that too. And I will get to an age where the organs within me are no value to anybody. And under that circumstance, of course, I become a green member of staff and I donate my body back to my anatomy department so that my students can dissect me. But, you know, I've worked all my life since I was 13 I have got a a frighteningly um, Scottish Presbyterian Knox approach to to work life. Um, And I'm not going to be able to stop working even when I die. So the prospect that I can come back and teach is just utterly irresistible. And the fact that, you know, I can extend my longevity beyond that point of death is hugely ego Um, awareness for me. If you think about Brian Patton's poem, Brian Patton's poem on how long does a man live tells us that a man lives for as long as we carry him inside us, for as long as we carry the harvest of his dreams, for as long as we can ourselves live. Holding memories in common, a man lives. In our world, that's not true. Because you can go on and you can live beyond that body spiritual and that memory-holding concept, you continue within your corporeal remains and you continue to tell your story through what remains of you, whether it's skeletal, whether I, I am an articulated skeleton within my own dissecting room, that is my ambition, is to be an articulated skeleton in my own dissecting room. Then I have the opportunity and the incredible opportunity to live long beyond the memory that anybody will have of me in a spiritual existence. I've talked long enough. Thank you. <clears throat>